Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Very Thing I Was Eager to Do. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, November the 26th, 2017. It's been 27 weeks of ordinary time since the last church feast on Pentecost Sunday. An entire half a year. Next Sunday, December 3rd, begins a new church year with the season of Advent. But before then, this Sunday of the liturgical year confronts us with the last judgment at the end of time. It's the last Sunday of the liturgical year. We consider the last judgment. Matthew 25, 31-46 raises several complicated questions. Is this passage a parable or not? The last judgment we read is of all the nations, quote-unquote. There's language about eternal reward and punishment. And both the blessed and the cursed are surprised by their destinies. But these important questions should not obscure a simple truth. In the words of James Forbes, the former pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, nobody gets to heaven without a letter of reference from the poor. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, said Jesus. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. To follow Jesus means to care for the vulnerable. There's no other way. Jesus says that our judgment in the next life will be based on how we treat the poor in this life. A while back, I read a book by two people who spent their whole lives struggling against what they call the insomnia of the scandal of poverty. The title of the book is called In the Company of the Poor, Conversations with Dr. Paul Farmer and Father Gustavo Gutierrez. Father Gutierrez, born in 1928, is a Dominican priest and theologian who splits his time between his parish in Lima, Peru, where for 50 years he has lived and worked among the poor, and then teaching at Notre Dame University. Back in 1971, he published a game-changer of a book, which was called A Theology of Liberation. The book established his reputation as the so-called father of liberation theology, and it made famous the notion of what is called a preferential option for the poor. Paul Farmer was born the same year that Gutierrez was ordained, in 1959. Farmer is a Harvard MD and PhD, clinician, tuberculosis specialist, author of numerous books and articles, recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and professor of medical anthropology at Harvard Medical School. That is, when he's not living in a hut in his beloved Haiti, where he founded Partners in Health, or traveling a quarter million miles a year 
to lecture, visit prisons, or meet with the likes of George Soros or the Gates Foundation. His story is told by Tracy Kidder in the unbelievable and remarkable book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. When Paul Farmer was in college, he read Father Gutierrez and other liberation theologians. When he founded Partners in Health in 1987, he took his legal mission statement for incorporation directly from Gutierrez. It reads, Our mission is to provide a preferential option for the poor in health care. Farmer's debt to Gutierrez is further seen in his later book called Pathologies of Power, also reviewed at Journey with Jesus. Both of these men reject the many so-called explanations for why so many people are so poor. It's not nobody's fault or just the way things are. Poverty doesn't result from accidental forces of history. The deplorable disparities between rich and poor are not inescapable or necessary. Rather, they result from human agency, structural violence, economic policies, and corporate strategies. Some people are poor because of the choices of other people have made. And yes, some people are poor because of their own poor choices. As Farber likes to point out, disease makes its own preferential option for the poor that leads to early death. When people who were ministering in the poorest half of the world coined the term preferential option for the poor 40 years ago, they said something not only about our own human choices, but especially also about God's character. In their view, God is biased, even prejudiced, Far from being neutral or impartial, they argued that God plays favorites, you might say, by bestowing special favor on the dispossessed. And he asks us to do the same. Of course, this is not a new idea. It's a prominent theme throughout scripture, especially in prophets like Amos and poetry like Psalm 146. Or consider Proverbs 31.8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. When Paul met with the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, that the only thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. For about 10 years, as he traveled among groups of new Christians, Paul organized a famine relief effort for the people in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, Luke describes the daily distribution of food to widows. And for his part, James says that so-called true and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. About a hundred years later, Tertullian wrote how God had a so-called peculiar respect for the lowly, and that caring for the poor was the distinctive sign of believers. Even the pagan emperor Julian the Apostate in the 4th century, who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, 
acknowledged the Christian preferential option for the poor. He famously wrote, The godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours. In his book, Charity, the Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, Yale, 2013, Gary Anderson notes that Christian care for the poor is not just a utilitarian act of social justice. Bill Gates does that. An altruistic act with no element of self-interest or expectation of reward. That sounds like Immanuel Kant and not even merely a sign of a believer's personal faith, as with the Protestant reformers. Rather, says Anderson, care for the poor is the privileged way to serve God. So we care for the poor not out of guilt, ascetic renunciation, although God calls some people to that path, not out of some communistic ideal that rejects private property, nor because the poor are virtuous. Rather, in serving the poor, we care for our own souls by imitating the character of God himself. Only in heaven, said Mother Teresa, will we understand how much we owe the poor for helping us to love God like we should. Care for the poor is one of the things that the church has done well. You find it all over the world by all types of Christians. There are far too many examples one could give, but consider and be encouraged by just these four examples. In 2012, the Missionaries of Charity, founded by Mother Teresa, had over 4,500 nuns serving the poorest of the poor in 133 countries. The Catholic Worker Movement, founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Moran in 1933, has over 185 communities that are committed to nonviolence, voluntary poverty, prayer, hospitality for the homeless, the exiled, the hungry, and the forsaken. In 1950, the Baptist minister Bob Pierce, who died in 1978, founded World Vision with the words, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Today, as you probably know, World Vision is a billion-dollar-a-year relief agency. And finally, Millard Fuller, 1935-2009, to 2009, was a self-made millionaire by age 29 who renounced his wealth to follow Jesus. He joined an interracial community in Georgia called Koinonia Farms, and out of that context eventually founded Habitat for Humanity that builds housing for the poor all over the world. So, Paul says that care for the poor was the only thing that the leaders in Jerusalem asked of him, and it was the very thing he was eager to do. And what about hell and final judgment that's mentioned in Matthew 25, 31-46? Well, in the last sentence of his chapter, Hell, in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis put it this way, This chapter is not about your wife or son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It's about you 
in me. For books this week, I review a title by Robert D. Kaplan. It's called Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. New York Random House, 2017. This book is 201 pages. Robert Kaplan grew up in a small apartment in working-class Queens. He still has fond memories of cross-country trips with his father when he was a young boy, an inspiration that helped him form his later global wanderlust. For the last 30 years, he's crisscrossed the globe as a foreign correspondent. Many of Kaplan's books have been regional studies, like Balkan Ghosts, 1993, Surrender or Starve about Ethiopia, 2003, Soldiers of God about Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001, or a favorite of mine, The Ends of the Earth, from Togo to Turkmenistan, from Iran to Cambodia, A Journey to the Frontiers of Anarchy, 2001. In a 2000 book, The Revenge of Geography, he widened his lens to offer an explanatory thesis for the history of the whole world. In this, his newest book, Kaplan returns to his own country. It's a subject that he addressed in a book called Empire Wilderness, Travels into America's Future in 1999. For this book, in 2015, he left his home in Massachusetts and drove cross-country to San Diego. He combines first-person travel narrative, history, geopolitical analysis, and a street-level view of what he sees and hears across America, be it at Abraham Lincoln's home in Illinois, a deserted town in Wheeling, West Virginia, or the San Diego Harbor that is home to our Pacific fleet that, in fact, looks east to Asia. A prominent theme in Kaplan's work is the power of geography to shape and explain history. In his view, the westward expansion of America was in many ways a function of geography, that is, our two oceans, our massive waterways like the Mississippi River, the remarkably fertile plains, and, of course, the mountains. It used to be that Kaplan was pegged as a pessimist analyst of so-called real politic, but in the last chapter of this book, he tries to thread the needle between political realism and its sense of tragedy in idealism, as seen, for example, in America's manifest destiny. In fact, he supported the Iraq War, but has since expressed deep remorse for that. When our westward expansion was completed, and despite our country's faults and failures, he finds that America was so-called fated to lead, end quote, the entire world as an unrivaled power and a necessary protector of the liberal world order. There's a deep moral contradiction here, Kaplan observes. If America had not conquered the West, through violence against Native Americans, or a war of naked territorial expansion like the Mexican War, 
there would be nothing like the world order that we enjoy today. A geopolitical writer, one of my favorites, Robert D. Kaplan, of his many books, this newest book, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. From movies, we turn to music in a title called Gaga, Five Foot Two. This film is from 2017. This Netflix original documentary bills itself as a type of cinema verite that gives viewers a so-called unfiltered view into a year in the life of the famous rock star Lady Gaga. Since the movie is direct and unscripted with no narration, it ends up being patchy. It's fun to see Gaga in the music studio, on a movie set, out in the desert for a video shoot, and rehearsing for her Super Bowl performance, but much less so to see her frying bacon at home or seeing her get her makeup and her hair done. She dishes on her feud with Madonna, explains the pain she experiences from fibromyalgia, and expounds on the power struggle between men and women. My favorite scene was when she visited her grandmother's house to play the title piece for her album, Joanne, that was in fact named after her aunt who died at the age of 19. I give Lady Gaga credit, especially after watching the music documentary, Amy, about Amy Winehouse. World famous at age 21, Gaga says in this film, I want to grow up and become a woman. That must be very difficult for a person in her shoes when everyone wants a part of you. Gaga, five foot two. You can find this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry, one of my favorites, Daniel Berrigan. This is called simply Credo. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. Daniel Berrigan, Credo. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, November the 26th, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.